Uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 this morning. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. James writes this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? God, thank you for your word. We thank you again for the book of James and how it's so intensely practical, how it confronts just so, so many things in our lives. And also reminds us at the same time, God, that as we confront these things, that you give more grace to overcome and to grow and to move on. So thank you for these truths. God, we pray now that your spirit would take your word, not mine, I have nothing, but would take your word, your truth, plant it deep in our hearts as we just sang, cause us to change and grow. For the glory of Jesus Christ, the kingdom, and the building of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. I came across this. I've heard this a couple of times ago at a couple of pastor's conferences. And I thought about this when I was reading What Causes Quarrels and Fights Among You. I was walking across a bridge one day, and I saw a man standing on the edge about to jump. I ran over and said, stop, don't do it. Why shouldn't I, he asked. Well, there's so much to live for. Like what? Are you religious? He said, yes. I said, me too. Are you Christian or Buddhist? Christian. Me too. Are you Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Me too. Are you Episcopalian or Baptist? Baptist. Wow. Me too. Are you Baptist Church of God or Baptist Church of the Lord? Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you original Baptist Church of God or are you reformed Baptist Church of God? Reformed Baptist Church of God. Me too. Are you reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1879? Or reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation 1915? 
He said, Reformed Baptist Church of God, Reformation of 1915. I said, die, heretic scum, and pushed him off the bridge. (laughs) What causes fights and quarrels among you? James chapter 4 is a continuation of James chapter 3, this contrast. At the end of chapter 3, we were shown what heavenly wisdom looks like, right? Merciful and, and good, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. James turns the corner here in chapter 4 to contrast the opposite of that. What causes fights? And quarrels among you. Let me ask you a series of questions. Who are you angry with this morning? Why? Why are you angry with them? Who are you upset with, annoyed by, or resentful of? Why? Who do you bicker and quarrel with in your family the most? Why? Who are the students or the teachers that make you mad at school? Why? At work, who do you dislike and try to have the least contact with? Why? In the group you belong to, sports team, PTA, a planning committee, a hub group, your church, who are you irritated with? Why? Our usual answer to the question why usually goes something like this. We we point to reasons outside of ourselves. It's because of something they did. It's because of the way they are. James says not so fast. James pushes back and says that the reasons often are actually in us. There are certainly times to be upset and angry, right? At injustice, at times when sin is, and rebellion is allowed to go unchecked. But if we're honest, most of our negative feelings toward others are for far less noble causes than reasons that righteous anger justifies. What causes quarrels and fights among you? James starts into this, selfish desires make us enemies of one another. Consider these words, quarrels and fights. I I think when I read this, the word quarrels kind of comes across too light. It's kind of like this, oh, just this little thing, just a quarrel. And actually, the word is very, very strong, and especially the combination of these words in Greek, quarrels and fights. In their semantic range, uh, this word quarrel can include, and it does, and I think in James Burbank, armed conflict, war, battle, fight, strife. Conflict. I think these are all nuances of the word quarrel that James uses. Again, combined with the word fight, so that includes nuances of quarreling, fighting, strife, and disputes. This is ugly. This is shock language. James isn't saying, oh, these are just minor little quarrels, squibbles. He's like, this is actually war. This is battle. This is bloody conflict. And he wants us to catch the weight of it. That war and battling and fighting has no place in the church of God. You know, you've heard me talk about how I've spent time in, in Ukraine and, and, and uh, 
interacted with the children and, and we had these things and I remember playing with these kids and, and with these people and then I, you see these images and, and the destruction and the suffering and especially the civilians and you just like, it, it's senseless, it's stupid, like, like that does not belong there. Like those children should not be suffering. That is out of place. It's ugly and it's destructive. And, and I think that's what James is trying to create for us here. This is war. This is battle. These squabbles, these squibbles in between you want to, that's war, that's battle, and it is completely out of place amongst the people of God. Just as war is out of place, not just in Ukraine, but really, we'll see anywhere, right? Strong words. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Well, as we've seen in James, he answers this question with a question that's not really a question, right? It's an answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's inside. What causes fights and quarrels? It's the passions in your own life, the selfish passions, the unmet expectations. That's generally what causes the fights and quarrels among you. We have an innate, self-centered readiness to fight to get our way. Right? That's often our default. I'm really good at it. No one had to teach me how to, how to fight to get my way. <laughs> the passions with, at war within you. This is the word that we get hedonism from. That's the word for passions here. That's a significant word. Hedonism is this desire for pleasure. And it probably here in James 4 also includes a a desire for power and control. Remember, at the beginning of chapter 3, James says, not many of you should desire to be teachers. There's probably some of that going on here too. This desire not only for pleasure, but for for prestige and, and for power and to be up front. Hedonism is the belief that pleasure in, in me is the, is, is the chief good in life. Give, giving me what I want is the chief good in life. And it's really for, easy for us to look at our culture and go, oh yeah, that is. Our, our, it's a pleasure-seeking culture. It's a hedonistic culture. But we've got to be careful because a me-centered hedonistic theology also made its way into the church. We have fallen for a pleasure-centered theology to varying degrees. In its worst form, we see it in the health and wealth gospel. In its more subtle forms, we see it manifested in attitudes of what is the church doing for me and in our desires for the church to serve my needs and to make me feel good. Spirituality becomes about making my life better and easier. Inspirational becomes the descriptive word to describe our faith rather than sacrifice. Make me feel better about myself becomes the desired mission of the church rather than take up your cross and follow. And entertain us rather than teach us to serve becomes the edict that church leadership is tasked with. And we see this and I put myself in this category too, right? When we complain about worship styles, programs that are or are not offered. Coffee. No, I'm kidding, Jake. Uh, <laughs> right? But when we complain about things, and sadly, many times the church has been complicit in fostering this mentality by catering to these pleasure-centered, selfish, cultural whims. No wonder we have a pragmatic view of worship. I do want to make a clarifying statement that pleasure in and of itself is not evil. 
It becomes evil when it becomes the controlling and driving force, driving force in my life. Right? God created pleasure. In fact, Christians should be able to enjoy pleasure more than anyone else because for the Christian, it actually has meaning and perspective. And we are able to keep pleasure in its place and, and we don't ask of it what it cannot deliver. God gave us pleasure. He gave us a good earth to enjoy. We as Christians should better know how to utilize it and enjoy it better than anyone else. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, and for those of you who aren't familiar, right, Screwtape is where uh, Uncle Screwtape, he's this senior demon, and he's discipling his junior demon and telling him how to take this Christian out and different things he can use to, 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 to destroy this Christian. And, and he'd talk about pleasure. And he says this, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. The enemy, in the context of this, is, is God. Okay? So Screwtape is saying we're on God's ground, God's territory. I know that we, the bad guys, the demons, have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. That's what James is talking about. The pursuit of pleasure for pleasure's sake. The pursuit of pleasure for me. That's when we take God's good gifts and we, we wrongly use them. And they become destructive instead of good. James says what happens... When we do this and we elevate ourselves and our selfish desires and pleasures, we wage, uh, or no, I'm sorry, he says what these things do is they, they wage war inside of us. Right? Should I love this person and serve this person or should I put myself second? I give him myself here. Should I roll over this person to get what I want? It's a constant battle, right? The pursuit of pleasure, selfish pleasure, warns against our new nature and is allowed to dominate and win. So James is concerned with the outward manifestation of these inward selfish desires. Fights come from our pleasures. Why? Our desire for pleasure. Why? Because this self-focus diminishes the importance of others. As I come to view them as either objects of my pleasure or impediments to my pursuit of my own pleasure. So I see you as either an object to help me fulfill my pleasure or I see you as someone who is in the way of me fulfilling my pleasure and I don't like it and I get mad and I react. Selfish desire, wrong motives. Selfish ambition and vain conceit cannot be the basis upon which I act and cannot be what govern my personal interactions within the body of Christ. It will destroy us. So as we consider these questions that we thought about earlier, who makes me mad? Who ticks me off? Who am I irritated with? Who do I have a problem with? We probably should evaluate whether the reason we are ticked off is because of some unmet desire in our own life. I want the honor or the recognition or the promotion that that person is getting. 
I want a family situation like theirs. I want the new car. I want the new house that they just got. I'm mad because I didn't get it, right? Their kid made varsity and mine got cut. The church is doing programming that they want and not what I want. Sometimes we simply bristle under someone else's control. We desire to control, but we don't get the opportunity, so we bucket their control. I mean, the reasons are endless. And we, me, I'm, I'm really good at finding selfish reasons to be upset. James continues to drive this point home. You desire and do not have, so you murder. Woo, good. We're actually okay here. Over the past 20 years, to my knowledge, no one at Forest Hills has killed anyone else over any decisions that have been made. That's a good thing, right? So this one doesn't apply. Check it off the list. Ah, no, no. <laughs> what James is getting at here is when we don't get what we want, when our desires aren't met, we can get nasty. Right? I heard someone, mm, it's all of you. Mm, I, I can get... I think of this like as a dad, right? I think a lot of dads are like me. Like when you're going on a trip, right? It's like you get your plan. It's funny. I could care less about a lot of things, but when we're when you travel, when it comes to the car and getting somewhere, it's like here's what time we're leaving. We're making potty stops, and I, I have five kids. We still use the word potty. Uh, we're making potty stops at this time and this time. We will arrive at this time. Inevitably, what happens? We forgot this. We got to do this. Zach's diabetic supplies. Where are they? Forgot the, you know, oh, the tire's flat. And, and you see that, you know, and, and this is where the curse of um, um, GPS, because you see the arrival time. It's supposed to be 4 p.m. And as I'm driving out Cloverleaf, it is now 4.06 p.m. It's okay. It's only six minutes. No, no, no. Then we forgot to get gas. I forgot to get gas. And then it changes. Now it's 4.15. And then there's a stinking construction all over the state of Michigan where road close has become our state motto. <laughs> it has. I'm not right? Am I right? It... <laughs> 4.40. Rage. And some kid in the back seat innocently asked, Daddy, can we listen to some Jesus music? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not listening to Jesus music. Shut up. <laughs> Stop talking. And I get it, like, we get this way. When our expectations aren't met, we get grumpy. <laughs> this is what James is talking about. This goes back to as old as Cain and Abel, isn't it? Cain is jealous of Abel. God accepted Abel's sacrifice, not mine. Instead of Cain, go and say, God, what can I do about this? His solution would kill my brother. Ahab, jealous of Naboth's vineyard. And before we get too harsh on Ahab, don't we not do this? He couldn't get Naboth said, no, it's my family's vineyard. I can't, I can't sell it. He goes and he pouts in his room like a little petulant child. Shame on Ahab. Well, <laughs> if we're honest, how many of us do the Ahab thing? Right? What's Jezebel's solution? No, oh, let's, kill, let's go kill, kill Naboth. Hey, I got a vineyard for you. He's like, yeah. Is murder too strong a word here in James? Nope. 
Consider the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, 21 through 22. And I believe that James had this in his head when he was writing this, where Jesus says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder, but I tell you this, if you harbor anger towards someone, if you call someone a fool, you have a homicidal heart. You've committed murder in your hearts. That word fool, I think you could replay any word that is a destructive word attacking one's character and identity, that's murder. I think James uses this terminology taking teaching right from his half-brother. It's murder. When I'm angry at someone, when I lash out in anger and call him a fool, I'm committing murder in my heart. James uses this shock language to help us realize the weight of our negative attitudes towards one another. It's a big deal. Right? He says you covet and cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. Your expectations are unmet. You don't get what you want. You fight. You quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. This was probably the part of the passage that gave me the moment. I'm like, why is this in here? This, this part doesn't seem to make sense. Because if you just read it on the surface, what James seems to be saying is, you have yourself this desire. You want the boat? Just, just ask God. Like, I'm like, oh, God, if I just ask, God will give me my selfish desires. That is not what, what, what James is saying here. You do not have because you do not ask. Here's, here's what I think it is. Here's my take on it. When one is pursuing their own selfish agendas, we stop praying. Maybe we stop praying because we realize our desires are illegitimate. Maybe we stop praying because we don't really believe that God can give us what we want. We stop believing in God's goodness. I.e., the world can give me something that God can't, so I'm not going to pursue God anymore. I'm just going to go get it in the world. I think this was Eve's thing in the Garden of Eden, right? Question God's goodness, right? Like, why didn't Adam and Eve stop right there and ask God? Right? You've heard me say this before. First of all, snakes don't talk, and there's a talking one in the garden. You would think that Adam and Eve would go, wait a minute, let's stop real quick and ask the creator why we have a talking snake when this has never happened before. <laughs> no. They were deceived. Eve was deceived. She saw, saw with her eyes, it looks good. Question God's goodness. God's holding out on me. Instead of asking God, she made the judgment herself. Whatever the case, God is left out of the equation when pleasure becomes our God. We have these desires, but they remain unmet because instead of going to God for meaning and fulfillment and direction, we go our own way. So we don't have what we want and need most because we've left God out of the equation and allowed our appetites in the world to become our gods. So what keeps people from engaging God correctly is a preoccupation with one's own pleasure and pragmatism, i.e. hedonism. So not only do we not relate correctly to one another anymore, what causes fights and quarrels among you, but selfish desire and and the pursuit of my own pleasure also now causes me to not relate to God correctly anymore. James goes here in just a few minutes when he talks about becoming friends of the world and adulterers and enemies of God. James says when, when you do ask on occasion, you don't receive because you ask with wrong and selfish motives. The satisfaction of your own passions. So wait a minute, no, I still pray. Well, you know what, if, if you're praying for that new boat, <laughs> just because that, that's not God-centered prayer. You're praying for these things just to satisfy your own passions. That's not God-honoring Christ's first prayer. That's the prayer of the double-minded man. Right? Terminology that James uses. So I said this just a second ago. So these selfish and worldly desires, not only do they damage our relationship with one another, but these selfish and worldly desires make us enemies of God. 
God views those who live for their self-centered pleasures in an adversarial way. And there's two key words here. Adulterer and enemies. Adulterer and enemies. And these are two really heavy words. But this is what I become. I'm going to have them show you a little uh, video clip here. And uh, again, you know my, my Red Sox loyalties. Right? This is an ESPN commercial that was made uh, back um, in, when David Ortiz played for the Red Sox. Red Sox legend, uh, World Series hero, um, Hall of Famer, and, um, and Jorge Posada was a, a Yankee, uh, one of the great Yankee catchers who played, who, who played for the Yankees. And these two guys were at the heart of the Red Sox-Yankee rivalry. So I want to show this commercial to demonstrate this thing of, 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 of spiritual adultery. I'll connect it, trust me. <laughs> Jorge. Yeah. What's going on with your hat, man? It's from my hat, man. I mean, it doesn't look like a ball player's hat. I mean, it looks all brand new. Just come out of the box. <laughs> I'm a catcher, man. I, I never had to wear that thing. You gotta bring this thing in. Hey, Wally. Wally. Hey, it's not what you think. Named after the green monster, the wall. See the connection? Okay, good. Uh, Wally is the mascot. So David Ortiz is just sitting there, and he's helping Posada break in his hat. And Wally sees the Red Sox legend wearing the hat of their most hated enemy. And Wally can't take it, right? You saw Wally. He's, he's heartbroken. He's angry. He walks away. All right? James is saying, hey, when you follow your own passions and you start looking to the world to fulfill those things, you've put on the attire of the enemy. Ultimate betrayal, right? Wally felt betrayed. This is way worse than that, right? The ultimate betrayal. This terminology of adultery. Uh, this is rich language throughout the Old Testament. Number one, this is one of the, the, the when you think of the, the Old Testament law and the punishments, adultery, there were few that were worse than adultery. And I think it's no mistake that, that throughout the Old Testament, adultery is the imagery used to capture uh, the covenant unfaithfulness of God's people. The ultimate betrayal, turning their back on their God, he uses the terminology of adultery. Right In Isaiah 62, 5, he's talking about this relationship. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The people of God as, as, as his bride, and certainly this, this imagery is throughout the New Testament now, the church is the bride of Christ. And yet because of their sin and their, their traitorous alignment with the world, in places like Ezekiel 16, these accusatory statement, adulterous wife, you adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Become adulterers. Become enemies of God. When we desire friendship with the world, when we desire this coziness with the world. And it's interesting, he says, it's not just actually even doing it, it's, it's this desire in verse 4. This is a key word. It indicates a heart orientation, a choosing. The person who wishes or intends to make themselves a friend of the world, it, it's, like, it's like me wishing to flirt with someone other than my wife. Right? It's like 
Luke and I go into a restaurant together and we're sitting there and I see this girl across the thing. I'm like, well, I'm not going to do this because I'm a married guy, but man, I would love to flirt with that girl. I'd love to just go. Uh, if he's any kind of a friend, he's going to be like, you idiot. Like, what? Like, no. Like, wish, why would, even wishing that, why would you even wish? I don't care if you're going to act out in a knot. The fact that you're wishing that shows that there's something wrong with you. James is saying that desire to grab onto the world and to turn your back on God is, is, is the equivalent of, of adultery. The adultery theme becomes even more poignant. The friendship theme becomes even more poignant when James introduces the concept of God's jealousy in verse 5. There's a lot of debate over this verse, but, um, but here's the, the gist of it. God desires us. And it's hard not to hear that word jealously, jealousy and impose our human uh, sinful understanding on it. But, but the jealousy of God is actually a good thing. The fact that the God of creation, the God of all universe, wants to be in relationship with you, wants you to walk with him because he knows that everything else you're chasing after will just bring you brokenness and emptiness. Like, that's a good jealousy. He loves you. He wants you to love him back. God desires you. And yet you chase after what he can only give in all these other places. Spiritual adultery. It's pretty cool to think that the God of the universe is lovingly desirous of our affections. And real quick too, too, understand what this word world means. I think the best connection for me in my mind, it goes to the book of Revelation, this concept of Babylon. Babylon's this world system. It's a way of thinking that's anti-God. It's this worldly way of thinking that worships the creation. That's, I think that's what he's talking about. He's not, he's, he's not talking about like it's wrong for us to enjoy creation. Remember, God made his good. It's, it's right for us to enjoy creation and the good things that God has given us and, and the arts and the beautiful things that we create. Enjoying and loving those things isn't the problem. It's, it's elevating those things to the point of uh, past God. That's where the problem becomes. It's when I start thinking like the world and valuing the world over God. That, that's when I become uh, a worshiper of Babylon. That's when I start loving the world. That's what James is speaking out against here. Submitting to the world's ethics and values over God. So what's the solution to this problem? I love this because God just doesn't say, okay, you're a helpless cause. Because if you said that, I would have been done a long time ago. Humble repentance and the grace of God is the cure. The next statement, I mean, after these statements of enemy and adulterer, the next statement is incredible. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. What's the cure for your selfishness and your wrong way of thinking? It's humbly falling on my face before God and saying, God, you already know this, but I'm a mess. I'm broken. I have wrong desires. I have wrong passions. I think that the solution will be out here, and I know that's not true, but that's what I feel. That's what I think, and I am desperate for you. Lord, I need you. I need your help. I confess this to you, and James tells us that the grace of God comes and is fired upon us. I thought about the time on my sabbatical when we went to, took a little boat to the bottom of Niagara Falls. And that, that unrelenting cascade of water, that nothing could be done to stop it. And I pictured that when I thought about, but he gives more grace. I can't stop it. It covers, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming. And if I'm just humble, walking with God and asking for his help and repenting of my sin, God gives that grace 
that grace to heal me, that grace to forgive me, and that grace to help me grow past these selfish perspectives. That's what God does. He gives these rapid-fire commands, right, to resist the devil. This is a military word. Draw near. Cultivate a relationship. By the way, in Ephesians 6, you see both of these things play it out. Ephesians 6, the armor of the Lord, stand firm. It's the same term as this resist. Stand firm, fight, have the, the, arm, the shield of faith and all the spiritual armor. There's, there's the cultivation of, of resisting the devil. And then after he says, after all of this, praying in the Spirit. And there's the connection with God. There's the drawing near to God. And that's the formula. God gives me grace to do. He's not calling us to gloom. He's calling us to take sin seriously. True joy and blessing comes from mourning and repenting over my sin. Matthew 5, 4, right? Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. As constant in James' book, he does come back around to a practical thing. What does this repentance look like? What does it look like when I put myself second? When I stop living for my own passions and desires and stop, stop rolling over people to get what I want and stop forgetting my God and pursuing what I think I want out in the world. What does it look like when I reorient back towards God first and people first? It comes back to a pretty common theme. He says it's going to show itself in how I interact. Stop slandering one another. Stop judging one another. Right speech concerning one another is the expected outcome of repentance. This is what we are repenting to. Repentance more, is more than just feeling bad. Right? John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. So right speech and attitudes towards others is one of the fruits of repentance. Becoming gentle and kind towards others is the fruit of repentance. It's the evidence that I've dealt with the heart issues addressed in the previous verses. It's such an arrogant place to be in when I'm living for my own passions. In fact, James says it's so arrogant. And then these attitudes and such I have towards other people. He says, you know, you realize when you're slandering others and when you're speaking evil against them, what you're doing is you're elevating yourself above the law of God. In fact, you're elevating yourself above God himself because God has said don't slander. God has said love others as you love yourself. And so in your arrogance, when you don't do that, you are putting yourself in the place of God. And that's where the end of this passage Goes. Whoever slanders and judges speaks evil against the law and judges it. And I think James is referring right to Leviticus 19 here. Look at the themes. We've already seen this in James. This is Leviticus 19. You, sh- you shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor, defer to the great. We've already seen that in James, right? Par- partiality. Um, but in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slander among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. This is what James has in mind. Right perspective towards one another. And why do I say James has this passage in mind? What did we already talk about in the book of James in the sin of partiality, the royal law? Right? James has been all about the royal law. And what was the royal law? Love your neighbor as yourself. James had this exact passage in mind because in verse 19, in verse 18, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the royal law. 
James is saying when you treat each other a certain way, you're in complete violation of what God has decreed. And by the way, statements about judging and slandering, it doesn't mean that we don't confront. James actually, the very last two verses of his passage, talk about right confrontation. Okay? Confronting out of love is different than slandering and judging, which is usually generated by different motives such as jealousy and ambition. Right. It's important to make that distinction. I come to a brother out of love, or when a brother, my first response shouldn't be, stop judging me. No. If you're coming to me out of love, I need to listen, I need to hear. It's the bad heart attitude towards the person. Slander. It's talking bad about that person to other people. Elevating myself. That's what James is con- condemning here. A judgmental attitude. I, I, I see what they did, and I know why they did it. I know what they're thinking. You don't. That's judgment. Right? I'm going to ask Tom to come on up. He's going to close us in a song here in just a minute. One of the most controversial battles in the Pacific was the battle for the island of Peleliu. The decision to invade Peleliu came after Roosevelt met with some of his generals, including Douglas MacArthur in Honolulu. And there was a lot of tension with the armed forces at the time. The U.S. basically had control of the war in the Pacific. It wasn't a matter of if the U.S. was going to win that. It was a matter of when. And as you know, if you remember, Douglas MacArthur was big on the Philippines, and he kept pressing, we need to get the Philippines, the Philippines, the Philippines. He's really one of the only ones who felt that way. Most of the other ones were saying, we don't need to go that way. We go here, we go to Formosa, we go into Japan, and we have it, and it's done. But Roosevelt capitulated to MacArthur, for better or for worse, and in the way was this island of Palulu. And the Japanese had firmly entrenched themselves there. In fact, they were very wise in how they did this. The U.S. Navy shelled Palulu for days. And the Japanese didn't fire back. And we thought it was going to be a cakewalk. But what they had done, there was these, there was these hill regions in there, and they, for, for months and months, had been tunneling and created this network of underground things. So when the U.S. soldiers started, uh, Marines started landing on the shores of Palulu, they just got, dense. that's when they started opening up with the artillery. And it became one of the most costly battles in all of the Pacific campaign. One soldier wrote this about the battle that some authors have called an unnecessary hell. Some leathernecks found their emotions numbed by the sheer horror that surrounded them in that living hell of Palulu. Love, honor, and friendship were rendered meaningless, and before long, nothing was left, not even basic human decency. One first Marine regiment veteran recalled, I resigned from the human race. We were no longer human beings. I fired at anything in front of me, friend or foe. I had no friends. I just wanted to kill. Part of the other problem with Palelu and what led to so many deaths was this inter-service rivalry between the Marines and the Army. Here, the 1st Marine Regiment that had taken Guadalcanal and the Army's 81st Division were at odds. Major General William Rupertus uh, refused to turn things over to the Army until his superior, Major General Roy Geiger, personally saw the situation, surveyed it, and intervened. The Marine 1st Regiment had suffered 1,617 casualties in the first 200 hours of the invasion. By the time Geiger intervened, the 1st Battalion of the 1st Regiment had suffered a 71% casualty rate. Only 74 men from nine rifle companies were left standing. In total, there was about 96 to 9,800 casualties with 1,790 soldiers killed. 
And here's the thing, many have said that that was a completely unnecessary battle to begin with. The only reason why we went there is because of man's ego getting in the way. And if nothing else, we went there, and what resulted in so many deaths was the ego of the two services saying, we don't need them, you know, we don't need it, we got it, we got it, we got it. And it was that selfishness that led to so many deaths and created an unnecessary hell. I wonder how many times we create unnecessary hell in our relationships with one another and in our churches and in our families because we share that selfish perspective, thinking of ourselves first, capitulating to our egos and our desires. And there's casualties all over the place relationally. Let this mind be in you. That was also in your Savior, Christ Jesus.